To learn more about Southwest Baptist University, visit svuniv.edu. Here's your host, Daniel DeWitt. Her name was Gertrude. She liked to wear a monocle. That's one of those one-eye lenses people used to don that had a chain dangling down on the side. She liked to smoke cigars. And with her first philosophical paper, she defeated the Christian rock star apologist C.S. Lewis. I'll have more to say about that towards the end of the episode when we return to Lewis's demons in the Screwtape Letters. Because our convo was so good, I've devoted most of this episode to the interview with Amin Hudson. If you missed our last episode, Amin is a writer and a speaker who focuses on the intersection of theology, art, and culture. He's also the co-host of the Southside Rabbi podcast that he produces with Christian rap artist K to the Second Letter. Amin and his wife are members of Living Faith Bible Fellowship in Tampa, Florida. I asked Amin what movies he's embarrassed to admit he loves. Here's his response. I love the movie The Proposal. It's a rom-com. Yeah. And I love Bridesmaids. I'm a little embarrassed by those two. (laughs) I've never seen them. Oh, man. I'm totally judging you right now. Judge me all you want. (laughs) I I take it, but I do. I like The Proposal. It's a it's a romantic comedy, and I like I like uh, I like bridesmaids too. So it's always fun to talk to public intellectuals like Amin and ask about the thinkers who've influenced them. Amin shares his influences, both Christian and secular, and we talk about my burglary in a London cemetery. I have a lot. Number one, one of my biggest influences, I think, is my pastor Daryl Williamson. Um, I am very much influenced. Uh, I love, um, honestly, John Owen. Uh, he was a big, huge influence for me just because of the way that he talks about sin and the heart and the relationship between mm. both. I, I, I was very big, uh, John Owen, Spurgeon, of course, Frederick Douglass, a huge inspiration, mm. um, for me. Uh, I love Frederick Douglass, um, uh, who else? I would say, um, who I already said Spurgeon. So I said Spurgeon, jo- uh, Jonathan Owen, Richard Sibbs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a very big fan of Richard Sibbs. Uh, I love, as far as preaching too, um, I love H.P. Charles. Yeah. <laughs> I think H.P. Charles is an amazing preacher, amazing communicator. Uh, definitely was, I'm definitely inspired by Martin Luther King. Uh, inspired by Malcolm X. He was not a Christian, but um, there are things that I feel like uh, I take from him. Um, it, primarily that I think that Christians should have too, which is his boldness and his willingness to die for what he believed in um, and stand for truth, even if it meant he w- it would cost him his life. Uh, um, man, there's so many. Um, so many. Um, yeah, I'm... There's, I'm just drawing a blank right now because there's a lot of yeah. folks that I, I feel like I'm very Well, you much, named several. Yeah, I'm very much inspired by a lot. I just I always want to give people their flowers. But um, C.S. Lewis, of course, I love C.S. Lewis. I, I, I haven't read C.S. Lewis as much as I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I have such a deep appreciation uh, for C.S. Lewis. Um, I can't I can't uh, I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
for sure. Well, you might be interested to know that I have a very small piece of John Owen's headstone. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So no way. I was going to England to teach a class in London and uh, I wanted to go where he's buried because he's buried and it's called um, Bun Hill Fields. Okay. And it's right across from where one of the Wesley brothers preached his church. Gotcha. And then, but it was a church, a cemetery for people who were in bad standing with the Church of England. So they couldn't be buried in the Church of England cemetery that'd be buried in. So Isaac Watts, the hymn writers, buried wow. there. Wow. John Bunyan, John Bunyan. buried there. Yeah. So, wow. um, but John <laughs> Owen's headstone is like falling apart and there's little pieces of it all like around where, like where they've like been with the weed eater cleaning up. Right, 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 right. And so for historical preservation, I safeguarded a piece of his head. You got to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Amin and I talked about a quote from J. Oswald Sanders' classic book, Spiritual Leadership. Here's me sharing the quote and Amin responding to it. If you would rather pick a fight than solve a problem, do not consider leading the church. The Christian leader must be genial and gentle, not a lover of controversy. Mm -hmm. The leader should be one who corrects and redresses the injustices of justice. He goes on to say the leader must be actively considerate, not merely passive, and certainly not withdrawn by a rhetoric in disposition, always seeking a peaceful solution and able to diffuse an explosive situation. Mm, yeah, I think I love that quote. And I feel like some of what we have seen is not believers being able to diffuse an explosive situation, uh, but bring more dynamite and C4 to the situation, in my opinion. Um, especially with the culture wars that we have right now. Um, I think that it's one, I I just think that right now we have to start being, I trying to see how I want to say this. I believe that Christians should be more known for what they are for rather than what they are against. And I think that in this in in culture and society now, there's this whole culture war that is happening. And I think a lot of the times us as Christians, we could feel like our relationship to society is simply to just incessantly indefatigably critique it and correct it and be judgmental and, and just pedantic critics of everything. Um, and I don't think that that shows us being winsome, right? Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about is how, what does it look like to love your neighbor? I think that a lot of Christians would say, well, loving my neighbor looks like telling them the truth. And I would say, you're right. But there is a way that we go about truth telling that matters, right? I think that when I think, when I think about the Great Commission, it doesn't just stand on its own as something that we just do that is separated from all of the other commandments that God has given us, like love your neighbor or everything else that the Bible says um, that we are to do in the ways that we are to interact with our neighbor. 
world while we are preaching the gospel. So I think about what God says about loving our neighbor. I think about what Paul says about what love looks like. So if God says to us, you are to love your neighbor like you love yourself, one of the questions that you should be asking yourself is, okay, well, if I am to love my neighbor as I'm to love myself, what does love look like? What does that look like? Well, I think that Paul gives us a very clear picture of what love looks like in 1 Corinthians, right? 13, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so you should, you, we have to ask ourselves, do we look like that kind of people when we are engaged in culture and society? Are we patient? Are we kind? I just saw a, 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 a Christian tweet the other day, a prominent Christian, um, in response to uh, a, a good brother of mine, David French, talking about being winsome, uh, that God calls us to make, call us to be kind, but he doesn't call us to be nice, and that Jesus wasn't nice. And to me, I'm thinking that is the most asinine thing that I've ever heard. Number one, kindness goes so much above and beyond being nice. Being nice is actually the low bar. That's the easy thing. Being kind is much more substantive than being nice. And I have never heard anyone say, you know, you know, uh, Brother Dan, and I can tell you about this brother, he is one of the kindest individuals that you ever met. Kind man, like full of just, just the, 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 the fruit of the spirit and just what love means, just being kind to individuals. He is one of the kindest people that you will ever meet in your life, but he's not nice. He's not a nice guy, though. That doesn't make sense. For me, niceness is a prerequisite for being kind. And I think that in culture and society, if, 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 you're, if the world cannot see us as being people that are kind people, patient people, right? Uh, people that are not irritable, that are not resentful, that are not rude, that are not arrogant, then are we really loving them as we should? And I can hear people saying now, well, you know, I mean, the world is going to look at the truth and they're going to call it hate. And they're going to, you know, when we give them the gospel, they're going to say we're not being kind. They're going to say that we're not being loving. They're going to say, and I think that in some regard, it is true that when truth comes down to folks who are in darkness, truth can sound to them like hatred, mm -hmm. right? But there are ways in which we can be kind and loving and patient that the world can recognize why Jesus it's talking about, hey, the world sees the world sees your good works and they glorify my father who is in heaven. Hmm. Right. Or they know that I have come because of the love that you have for one another. So obviously there is a kind of love that the world in their darkness can recognize and say that looks good. Hmm. There's something about that that is attractive. There's also a kind of hypocrisy that that the Bible makes it very clear that the world can see and say, this is in that in which you know other author could say this is why God's name is blasphemed among the heathen. That's right. right? So yeah. the world can recognize hypocrisy, but the world can also recognize love. And so, and and I think that there's a lot of Christians that that err on the side of the world is always going to hate everything that we say. They're always mm. going to think that we're hate that 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 um that we're being hateful or we're being unloving. They're always going to think that we're jerks and being unkind simply because we we talk about the truth. 
That is not true. Sometimes the world thinks that you're being unloving and unkind and being a jerk because you are being a jerk. And that's one of the things that we have to understand is that truth that, that the Bible never, we always say, okay, well, what does loving my neighbor looks like? It, look, it looks like giving them the gospel. If I give the gospel to somebody, I'm giving the gospel to them because I love them. Mm-hmm. But the Bible never says that just because you preach the gospel to somebody, it means that you love them. Yeah. It never says that. The yeah. Bible yeah. makes it clear that if you do love someone, you are going to tell them about, you know, the gospel and the truth of God. You want to see them redeemed. But it never says that just because you do it, it means that you actually love them. That's mm-hmm. not what it says. And I think that a lot of folks take that Great Commission and say, if I'm just fulfilling the Great Commission and preaching the gospel with people and telling them the truth, it means I love them. And that's not true. The Bible tells us how we are to go about these things. When Peter is saying, hey, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, he also says, with gentleness and respect, Mm -hmm. right? Paul says, speak the truth. He doesn't just say speak the truth, period. He says, speak the truth in love, Mm right? Right? And so the, the Bible is never saying all we care about is truth and not how truth is presented. It never says that. The yeah. gospel is to come and our witness is to come in light of a life, in the context of a life in which is shown that we are loving people, right? And that we care about people. People are not just gospel projects that we give the gospel to and then could put a notch under our belt and say, well, I did it. Yeah. preach the gospel. Like, are you looking at this person that you're talking to about the gospel on the plane ride next to you as just like a gospel project, just so you can say, well, God, I fulfilled the Great Commission? Or are you looking them, looking at them as a fully embodied human being that has struggles and, and traumas mm-hmm. and pain and hurt? Our talk inevitably turned to music. Amin is a part of the Christian rap scene with his work with KB, HGA, and Southside Rabbi. So we had to talk Christian hip-hop for a few minutes. Where do you see, like, really, obviously with KB's music, where are you seeing, like, really encouraging um, signs of growth and opportunity within Christian hip-hop? Yeah, I, number one, um, one of the things that I, I think I, I I think Christian hip hop has grown in uh, its quality. Number one, when it comes to not like I'm just talking like sound quality, but then when it comes to lyrical quality, like being able to put together a great song production, all of that. Um, but I think that um, Christian hip hop is still alive and well when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. The reason that I am thinking about where I'm encouraged is that there's a lot of new young Christian hip hop artists now that are very, very serious about the gospel and seeing people's lives being transformed and changed. And they're also serious about giving people great art. So I think about somebody like, uh, like a Caleb Gordon, or I think about someone like, um, uh, a Scooty Wop, or, you know, I, I think about, um, uh, I just, there's, there's so many folks that I, I can, I'm thinking about, uh, like a YB, uh, who are very serious about the gospel being proclaimed and people knowing Jesus, and also very serious about packaging that in great quality art so that it's appealing, right? Um, because it's when <laughs> when you it's 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 not, in my opinion, the greatest to have an amazing, amazingly great message like the gospel, great message, but terrible art. I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think that the, I think that the art should reflect the greatness of the message, right? And the art is what's appealing. 
I want people to, I want to grab people with the art so that they hear the message. And I think that we have gotten much better at that now. And I think that there are so many, um, so many Christian who are young that are on the rise that are taking um, the gospel proclamation discipleship seriously and also taking the, and taking the art seriously. Uh, and that to me is encouraging um, because, you know, that's what we, that's what we need. We want Christian hip hop to continue to grow in truth. Um, and then also in its artistic um, just calling, right. To be, to be great artists. And also I think that Christian hip hop, another thing that, that's great is that Christian hip hop has also made its way into the mainstream. Right. I mean, we see that. I don't know if anyone has seen that new Apple commercial from Verizon to Dashiell Lecrae's get out my way song is the new song for that Apple commercial. Right. And it's playing all the time. I see it on TV all the time. So Christian hip hop is also extending. It's, it's also made its way into the mainstream. It's at the end. It's some some songs are at the end of VH1 shows. Some songs are in commercials. Right. Um, and so I think that now it's, it's also having a bit more of a mainstream appeal to where people was like, hmm, what is that? You know, what is that song on this Apple commercial? Let me Shazam that. Oh, this is a Lecrae song, right? And then that exposes you to, you know, the truth that he's bringing in his music, you know? And so I think um, I'm very encouraged by that. And I'm very encouraged by seeing a lot of uh, these new younger artists. I've seen this too, um, really reaching out for that kind of mentorship from some of the older artists as well, you know? Um, and uh, I would that's what I would say to a lot of the young Christian hip hop artists like to make sure that you have mentors and folks that you are being discipled by um and that you know you're also um that you're that that you're also you know serving in your own local church as well nobody's surprised to know amin likes rap so i asked him about music people might not expect him to be a huge fan of yes uh i think that folks would be surprised to know that I I listen to corn. Okay. Um, but I think that that I think that folks will be surprised to know growing up, I was a huge hip hop head, but I listened to rock at the same time. Okay. So I was listening to hip hop, I was listening to corn, I was listening to who was popular at the time. Limp Biscuit was popular at my time. Okay, yeah. So, um Green Day was popular, Papa Roach was popular. So I listened to all of that stuff too. Um and and I was listening to hip hop. So uh, I, so it's before know. your time, but the Aerosmith uh -huh. run DMC. Yes, the, the, yeah. well, I mean they had that intersection in their collaboration, which was that Aerosmith, loves, by the way. Was it Aerosmith? That was yeah, I thought it was Aerosmith. Right? Yeah, it was Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah. Walk yeah. this way. Yep, walk this way is Aerosmith. With all these bands, I tried to narrow things down for Amina bit. What if he could only have one album to listen to for the rest of his life? Which one would he choose? And I tried to mix that up a bit too. I asked Amin to pretend he's stranded on an island with one book, one album, and one meal, all of which are all he'll have for the rest of his life. Which ones would he choose? If I <laughs> could bring, my goodness, so one album... I think that I would bring would probably be, and, and I'm not saying this because I'm biased. So certain people won't believe me, but I'm going to say this because I think it is an album that stirred a lot in, in me. I would, I think that I would bring KB's weight and glory album. 
if mm-hmm. I could only have one album, because that really sums up a gospel life that is wanting to be lived for God's glory. So I would want that. If it's if it's one food, um, I think that I would bring. Goodness gracious! Is it okay when you say food? Is it like a whole meal, or is it just like a one food, like a chicken leg? No, no, whatever you want. Like it a whole to meal. Do. Okay, a whole meal. So if if it's gonna be a whole meal, it has to be my favorite meal is called. It's a Colombian dish called the bandeja paisa. I will bring the bandeja paisa because I think it has all everything you need. And if I can bring one book, and that is very difficult, I would probably have to think more on this and I would have a better answer. But off the top of my head, if I couldn't bring my Bible and I could bring one book, it may be it may be John Frame's systematic theology. Okay. Um, just because I feel like it's so much Bible in there. Yeah. I <laughs> love I Frame. I have my actual Bible. <laughs> I have. I have. I, I, I see can, what you did. You see what I'm saying? I'm trying. You see? I'm trying to. I'm trying to get the Bible by proxy. Yeah. So that's what. I, that's that's how I'm thinking about it. I'm probably not thinking about it as I should. Yeah. Like one of the most impactful. I'm thinking about how can I get the Bible by proxy. <laughs> I wanted to end our conversation with Amin on a positive note. So I asked him, how can Christians use the arts and the imagination as a window or a door for the gospel and for our theology? That art is important, right? Because art, whether it's movies, music, it could even be paintings, whatever form, yeah. it, it images and metaphors and analogies and stories help us grab meaning better than reason alone. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like you said, yeah. we like to appeal to people like they're Spock. I'm all for reason and intellect. <laughs> I have the I have a curious mind. I consider myself an intellectual. Sometimes I can be too intellectual that I appeal I, I am the one that falls on the side of appealing to the intellect too much. But I also love the arts. And I think that images, metaphors, analogies, and stories help us grasp meaning better than than that reason alone. And, and that's not just in in evangelism only, but it's almost in all communication, right? Um, and so you have someone that that may not be open to hearing about the story of Jesus. And, oh, I don't, I don't care about that. I want to hear about that. But they could be impacted by the story of Aslan, right? And it's like, hold on now, that can kind of open up this reality into which, hey, now you know that as there's a person that's really like. Aslan, right? Or it makes you think about like what C.S. Lewis said about how when he talks about us being far too easily pleased, we're like the kids that's in the slum playing with the mud pie, right? When God has given us a, a, a holiday at sea waiting, there's a holiday at sea waiting for us, but we'd rather be in the slums playing in the mud, then he says we're far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis could have easily just said we're far too easily pleased. That's what, that, 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 and that could appeal to the intellect. But what you remember is the imagery that he gives you of the kid playing in the mud plot pie when there's a holiday at sea awaiting us, right? So the imagery, the metaphors, and the Bible is full of that. Jesus is full of giving imagery and metaphors and the kingdom of God is like, there's a metaphor, right? Uh, and then you see that in hip hop, right? Like there's metaphors, similes, all of that. That stuff sticks with you, right? I think about that, you know, when... Uh, KB was talking about in the song about how we are as Christians not meant to be 
uh, this kind, having this kind of uh, Lone Ranger Christianity in which we're not submitted under a church. We don't have community. And he said, the Lord's army doesn't enlist privates, right? I remember that line. That line bring it's a creative line that brings truth to me that says, hey, I'm, this is not, the walk is not a Lone Ranger walk, man. I'm not, this is, this is not something that you just do by yourself. That's not how it works. not how God designed it. God's army, in God's army, he doesn't have privates. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I just think about all of these, these, different, these different things. I think you think about creative ways to, to, to communicate theological truth. I remember in an old song KB did when he was talking about, you think about reading in Hebrews where it talks about, you know, uh, that now we have a high priest who is the sacrifice for us once and for all. We don't, there's no you know, sacrificing, you know, bulls and goats and all of these things anymore. Now we have the ultimate lamb who was slain. Uh, KB said in the song, like, you know, now the bulls are no good, like after Jordan left, right? So it's these things communicate these truths um, that stick with you, that imagery, the metaphors, the analogies, the stories, the similes, um, you know, Shylin's album, Stories, amazing album of just stories about gospel truth. Um, that's that's relatable. All of that stuff sticks with you. And I think that those things um, can help us grasp truth better than just only appealing to reason, right? Um, and I think C.S. Lewis thought about that too, right? He said reason mm. is the, is the uh, natural organ of truth. Imagination is the organ of meaning, mm. right? And so um, I, I think that, um, man, art, the arts is just incredibly important, right? There's a, there is a time in a place to just appeal to reason and intellect. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, uh, jettison that. But mm. um, I think that uh, there's also truth and, and, and art and imagination uh, go together. And, and especially when you can make the theology artful, oh man, mm. it's amazing. Well, it was a great conversation with Amin. I'm so thankful for his leadership, his partnership in the gospel, and his friendship. We can't leave the episode with at least having a head nod towards Lewis and his demons. Speaking of which, you might be curious about the cigar-smoking young lady who bested Lewis in a public debate. It was the knockdown, drag out, cage match, battle of the minds of the 20th century. In one corner, you had the man who would be called by many the most influential theologian of the 20th century. In the other corner, the woman whom the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy calls one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. They were debating Lewis's book, Miracles, which he published in 1947. They specifically dealt with the third chapter in which Lewis says that naturalism, or atheism, is self-refuting. Anscombe challenged Lewis's language on the topic. Who would come out victorious? It wasn't C.S. Lewis. According to his friend and biographer, Roger Green, Green records this in the biography of Lewis he wrote with Walter Hooper. He writes, quote, the meeting is said to have been the most exciting and dramatic the Socratic has ever seen. According to Derek Brewer, who dined with him two days later, Lewis was deeply disturbed and described the meeting with real horror. His imagery was all of the fog of war, 
the retreat of infantry thrown back under heavy attack. Anscombe wrote to her teacher, Ludwig Wittgenstein, the very next day to report on the debate. Lewis, she writes, was much more decent in discussion than I expected, though he was glib and played all sorts of tricks to obscure the issue, end quote. In a later reflection on the debate, Anscombe, who had dinner with Lewis and a mutual friend just shortly after the debate a few weeks later, said there was no such sentiment of an absolute loss on Lewis's part. Nonetheless, there have been some who suggest Lewis stopped writing apologetic works after this point. And to be honest, they're kind of right in terms of Lewis's writing career. But I think they're wrong in attributing it to the Anscombe debate. I think it had more to do with the topic of prayer. But I have to save my thoughts on that for a later episode. Though this has been a debated topic, the effect of the Anscombe-Lewis debate among Lewis fans and scholars, in my humble but accurate opinion, I don't think Lewis did so poorly. I think it's likely he immediately felt like he wasn't at his best. We've all been there. And he probably shared that with a couple close friends. But I've heard skeptics say before and offer this example of the Anscombe debate as evidence that Lewis's arguments in general against atheism were somehow undermined. That overlooks a really significant detail. Mainly, Anscombe was a committed Christian. Her challenge was not against theism or Christianity, but against the language of Lewis's argument. And this brings us to what I think is the real test, for me at least. In 1960, C.S. Lewis published an updated edition of Miracles in paperback. Again, Miracles is the book they were debating. If you were to read the third chapter, which was the subject of the debate that night, uh, you'll see that Lewis softened the title of the chapter, but not the central argument. He changed the title from that naturalism being self-refuting to the cardinal difficulty of naturalism likely in large part because of his exchange with Anscombe. But this much is clear. Lewis wasn't retreating from his argument. He was refining it. What's this got to do with the screw tape letters? A lot and nothing at all. In some ways, it has nothing to do with the debate because it took place long after the screw tape letters were published. And Lewis never really uses the main argument from the third chapter of Miracles in the screw tape letters. So in that sense, it doesn't seem relevant at all. But on the other hand, it's got everything in the world to do with screw tape. One of Lewis's fundamental aims in the screw tape letters is to challenge the atheistic, materialistic, naturalistic way of seeing the world. There's more to reality than nature, Lewis tells us again and again. In Mere Christianity, Lewis describes this as supernature. As a former atheist, Lewis could empathize with the allure of a godless cosmos. But as a convinced Christian, he knew atheism could explain far less than the Christian view of the world. The demonic strategies of getting the patient to stop seeing the value of prayer, to explain away any answered prayer as mere coincidence, to see his conversion as merely a phase like adolescence, are all tactics Lewis had once fallen for himself. His project in the Screwtape Letters is to unveil the lie that the world is all there is, a lie that flows through Screwtape's pen, through Wormwood's actions, and is evident in every time and place in the Screwtape Letters. 
Lewis warned us at the beginning of the book that the two ditches to avoid are either denying demons altogether or blaming them for everything. His project in Miracles that's present throughout Screwtape addresses the latter, our tendency to reduce the world to time, space, matter, and energy, a world that exists by and for itself. Screwtape tells Wormwood in Letter 7 that their current policy as tempters in the world is to conceal themselves. In the very first letter of the book, Screwtape encourages Wormwood to keep the patient focused on what he can see and immediately experience. Screwtape writes, Thanks to the process which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science, I mean the real sciences, as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. End quote. Of course, the patient becomes a Christian sometime between letter one and letter two of the screw tape letters. So one of Hell's many tactics from this point on is to tempt the Christian patient to see his spiritual experience and beliefs as having natural explanations and just a normal phase of life. If they're lucky, he'll pass beyond these religious beliefs just like he grew out of adolescence, a process that today we would describe as deconstruction. C.S. Lewis continually shows us this world is pointing beyond itself. Even if through a veil of tears and amid trials, tribulations, and screw tape-like temptations on every side. Lewis reminds us the greatest news in all the world is that this world is not all there is. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Mere Caffeination. In our final episodes of Season 1, we'll look at the themes of church and heaven as we wrap up our journey through the Screwtape Letters. And we'll be joined by a surprise guest. So stay tuned. Until next time, stay calm, caffeinated, and kind. Thank you for listening to Mere Caffeination, produced by the Center for Worldview and Culture at Southwest Baptist University. To learn more about the center, visit sbuniv.edu forward slash worldview.